Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The pandemic has provided a grim reminder of disparities in health outcomes among different races and ethnic groups. We examine the lessons learned in administering COVID care in hopes they can be applied when it's time to administer vaccines. And the world has an ever-growing coffee addiction, most of all to the takeaway kind. But all those plastic-lined cups are a blight on the environment. We take a look at a clever new use for an otherwise wasted material that might solve the problem. First up, though. President-elect Joe Biden is expected to name Antony Blinken as his secretary of state this week. One of the things I've learned from doing this for for 25 years is whether we like it or not, um, the world tends not to, uh, to organize itself. Mr. Blinken is an experienced foreign policy advisor who favors a multilateral approach to international relations. America at its best has a greater ability than any country to mobilize others for the greater good. One of his key priorities will be America's relationship with China, something he acknowledged in September while campaigning for Mr. Biden. China poses a growing challenge. It's arguably the biggest challenge we face from another nation state, uh, economically, technologically, militarily, even diplomatically. Under Xi Jinping, China has grown ever more authoritarian, increasingly throwing its weight around on the world stage. President Donald Trump has responded by initiating a destructive trade war, imposing tough measures on firms like Huawei relating to national security, and taking a combative tone over China's handling of the pandemic's early stages. The merits of some of these measures are up for debate, but the broader political effect has been to recognize openly the strategic and ideological threat from Beijing. The task of the Biden administration will be to work out what to do about it. Well, it's an unusually tense moment in U.S.-China relations historically. Gotti Epstein is The Economist's China affairs editor. We've just seen under the last four years in the Trump administration a remarkable turn in U.S. policy on China that has made the relationship much more confrontational. I'm going to instruct my Treasury Secretary to label China a currency manipulator, the greatest in the world. And what Joe Biden will have to do is to decide how much he wants to continue the Trump administration line on China and how much he wants to kind of carve out his own approach to China that could be quite different. But that engagement is, is in the end, inevitable. I mean, what, what do you think the, the first, first act of this will be, his first engagement with China? I think the signal that Joe Biden will want to send at the outset is that things won't change a lot. And from what I gather from his advisors, 
Joe Biden is going to resist early overtures from Xi Jinping that would suggest any sort of reset or reframing of the relationship. Things like even taking Xi Jinping's congratulatory phone call, which has not happened yet, by the way. When Xi Jinping calls, he probably will try to frame the U.S.-China relationship in a way that would suggest uh, let's have a new sort of relationship that's different from under the Trump administration. And Joe Biden's been advised to kind of resist that olive branch because it's not a real olive branch, is the view. And what do we know about Joe Biden's views on China more generally and, and how that will shape what it is he, he wants to do and how he deals with President Xi? Well, the way that Joe Biden has talked about China in the campaign has changed quite a lot. The biggest difference is he used to frame his knowledge of China and of Xi Jinping in sort of neutral tones. He would talk about how well he knows Xi Jinping. They met first when both were vice presidents of their respective countries and spent hours talking to each other. Mr. Vice President, welcome. Welcome to the Roosevelt Room, west wing of the White House, and uh, we're a, a step away from the overall. But that changed. He took a harder line that indicated more of a continuation of the current attitude on China and Washington. No, I would not. I spent more time with Xi Jinping than any world leader had by the time we left office. This is a guy who is, has, doesn't have a Democratic with a small d bone in his body. This is a guy who is a thug who, in fact, has a million Uyghurs in reconstruction camps, meaning concentration camps. So to that end, what do you think of the things that will essentially be a, a continuation of the Trump administration policy? Yeah, there are quite a few areas I think will uh, remain pretty much the same. Probably foremost is uh, the administration's stance on, on Huawei. Under the Trump administration, the U.S. has taken quite tough actions on Huawei and on who can do business with Huawei that have really strangled the company. On trade, although I do not think that the Biden administration cares nearly as much about the trade deficit or thinks the trade war was wise for Donald Trump to undertake, I also don't expect any immediate action on that. I don't expect them to get rid of the tariffs immediately. Those are right now a point of leverage for any potential future negotiation with China. And I also expect the Biden administration to keep in place tough sanctions on Chinese companies and government entities that are complicit in the human rights abuses in Xinjiang and the crackdown in Hong Kong. And by contrast, where where will the real points of change be, do you think? We know that Donald Trump didn't personally have much investment at all in China's human rights abuses. And Joe Biden has made clear that he's going to make values a centerpiece of his foreign policy. And Joe Biden will also place an emphasis on allies, which was clearly not a strength of Donald Trump's. The Biden administration has made clear that they plan to work with allies in Europe and in Asia to figure out how to best counter China in a number of fronts. Another area where I think Biden will depart from Trump is on welcoming Chinese students to America. There was a rhetoric attached to them by Donald Trump that gave rise to fears, especially amongst Chinese Americans, that they would be targeted unfairly. And what about issues on which the, the countries can, can actually cooperate rather than compete? Joe Biden has indicated that he wants to work with China on important global issues like climate change, public health, denuclearization of North Korea. These were the kind of things that the Obama administration wanted to work with China on. What's unclear to me is what 
kind of cooperation that would entail. I mean, on climate change, the real action is on the Biden administration side. They're rejoining the Paris Agreement. What America and China can do, I'm told by kind of climate experts, is try and help enter a kind of a healthy phase of competition in developing green economies and renewable energy. On global health, I think you can expect the Biden administration to try to persuade China to let back in experts from the Centers for Disease Control, which the U.S. used to have in there working with the Chinese CDC, and a pandemic early warning team that America used to have placed in China, which the Trump administration pulled out just months before the outbreak of COVID-19. And what sense do you have for how welcome China thinks a, a Biden presidency will be? It's hard to say that they necessarily welcomed the change because there, there was a prevailing view in China that Donald Trump weakens America. So, you know, I think fundamentally China regarded the Trump years as a period of strategic opportunity. So in that sense, I'm not so sure that they're exactly cheering the arrival of Joe Biden. But on the other hand, he does represent a sort of a recognizable language of diplomacy. And so I do think that they will believe that they can work with the Biden administration to an extent. So it sounds as if a Biden administration will be something of a mix of, of what we've seen from the Trump administration and and prior ones, and conversely, that on, on the Chinese side, that the they will deal with Mr. Biden a bit like in the olden days and a bit like it has under the Trump administration. I think that's exactly right. But one key you know factor in here to remember is that China has a say in all this, and Xi Jinping has a say in all this. And I think we can expect Xi Jinping to look for chances to test Mr. Biden's medal. In the build-up to a crucial Communist Party conference in 2022, uh, he will not wish to appear weak. And you have to remember that just as the hard authoritarian turn under Xi Jinping, I think, helped define the Trump administration's approach to China, whatever Xi Jinping does next and what the Communist Party of China does next could have a lot to do with, with how the Biden administration engages with China. Gotti, thanks very much for your time. It was good to be with you. For a lot more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The last couple of shifts that I've worked have been tough. Marina Del Rios is a doctor in a Chicago emergency ward. Our hospital was full to capacity. We have a saying in our emergency department that basically assumed that everything is COVID. Among the flood of people coming through the hospital's doors, Dr. Del Rios has observed a clear trend. My hospital sits in the area of Little Village, Pilsen. Most of the population that we see are Latino and Black patients, but my last couple shifts, every patient that I saw that had COVID was Latino. Every patient that I admitted that had COVID was Latino. People talk about this third wave, but for Latinos, it's been the same wave throughout. It's just peaked now more. 
And I stopped counting how many people I know that either got sick or even died from COVID. You start losing track. For the Latino community, this completely decimated uh, neighborhoods and families. Over the weekend, COVID cases in America continued to climb, surpassing the 12 million mark. The daily death toll exceeded 2,000 for the first time since May. Ethnic minorities have been hit particularly hard by the pandemic. In America, a 40-year-old Hispanic person is 12 times as likely to die as a 40-year-old white person. And it's not just an American phenomenon. In Britain, almost all non-white groups have been more likely to contract COVID-19 and to die from it than whites. The virus is not colorblind. The pandemic has hit ethnic minorities especially hard for two reasons. Sasha Nauta is our public policy editor. Firstly, and most importantly, they seem to have been more exposed to the virus, which is because of a number of things. So they're more likely to work in frontline jobs, which means that they're more likely to catch it. They're more likely to live in cities. They're more likely to live in densely populated neighbourhoods. And then second, when they catch it, ethnic minorities tend to have more pre-existing conditions like diabetes that seem to put them at a higher risk of dying from the disease. So those two things added up together seem to explain or at least play a very important role in why in the countries that we have data for ethnic minorities seem to be so disproportionately hard hit by COVID-19. Well, but even in normal times, we, we know that there are disparities in, in health outcomes among minorities. How do these numbers stack up against that usual situation? A lot of public health officials have said that they're surprised, that the world is surprised that COVID is hitting ethnic minorities so much harder. Because indeed, as you say, in a way, it's a reflection of what you see in normal times. So in normal times, certainly in America, we know that the life expectancy gap between white and black people has long existed. It's narrower now than it has been ever, but there are still four and a half years difference in life expectancy then, which is pretty stark. And the reasons for this, again, come down largely to social factors, so-called socioeconomic factors, where people live, how much they earn, what jobs they do, their levels of education have been very closely linked to their health outcomes. And people who suffer more deprivation, which in many countries ethnic minorities do, have poorer health and shorter lives. And do those socioeconomic differences actually account for the the, the health outcome differences? The key question is indeed, can you explain all of this away, so to say, by controlling for all these different factors that we've just been talking about, right? And in Britain in particular, the Office of National Statistics has done a lot of data crunching here to sort of control for different factors like geography, like deprivation, like your job. And from that, you can conclude that social factors explain on the whole most, but certainly not all of these differences. And importantly, they're very different per group. So for example, for black men in Britain, who are nearly four times as likely to die of COVID than white men, that difference only goes down to two and a half once you control for all of those things. So in other words, there's this big so-called unexplained gap that remains. Whereas for another group like Bangladeshi women, the difference all but disappears. But it has to be said there are diseases that disproportionately affect different races and ethnicities. 
Absolutely. There are certain diseases like sickle cell disease, which, for example, in America, very much impact the black community much harder than any other groups. For example, in Britain, black people have much higher rates of stomach and prostate cancer than other groups. And yet this is a really touchy subject. Asking questions about race and health, ethnicity and health quickly gets tricky because people quickly think about genetic factors, eugenics, etc. There's a lot of horrible history there. And so it's a sensitive subject, but it's a very important one because only by understanding the causes behind these disparities can we start to close them. But yet you you have lots of statistics to hand to show that these disparities have existed are to a degree understood. I mean, could uh, the disparities in the case of COVID-19 not have been anticipated to some degree? Well, you're right that there is quite a bit of data coming from America and Britain, but those countries are unusual in the data that they collect. And part of the issue here is recognising this problem around collecting data about race and ethnicity and health. Some countries like France even outlaw it, um, the collection of it. Because of this, most countries don't actually seem to know and certainly aren't publishing anything about whether the pandemic is hitting particular groups harder or why. And if they do know it, they'll say something like non-Western migrants, which is a very unhelpful term. So one of the key lessons here is that governments need to become more okay and in fact more proactive with collecting data on race and ethnicity in general and particularly around health. There are lots of safeguarding issues, sure, and they are very, very important, but that shouldn't stop you from wanting to collect this data because only by collecting it can we learn how to overcome these gaps that we see. But that sounds like something of a a longer-term project. I mean, what would you suggest now to mitigate the impact of the disparities that we see right now? Well, governments are belatedly learning lessons from the first wave about making sure you reach all communities with things like testing and hopefully also soon with vaccines. For example, you don't just want to make testing centres available in official institutions. You want to actually go into the community and build testing centres in places that they trust, such as religious institutions. At the start of the pandemic, Latinos in Chicago, many of them undocumented migrants, avoided the testing centres because they were afraid of the authorities who ran them and feared that it might influence their visa status. And so hopefully when it comes to rolling out COVID-19 vaccines, these lessons will have been learnt. Sasha, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. How do you take that Monday morning coffee? Would you like some sugar with that? It's a familiar question asked in coffee shops around the world. But the question of what goes into the cup often takes precedence over the vessel itself. Most takeaway cups are coated in plastic, and the relentless rise in global coffee enthusiasm has more and more of them piling up in landfills. That could all change, and soon you might be asked, would you like some sugarcane in that? A team of researchers have come up with an alternative to the plastic coffee cup that looks like it could really solve a lot of problems. Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent at The Economist. The coffee cup is made out of a material known as bagasse, which comes from the leftover bits of sugarcane after you've squeezed out all the sugary stuff. 
Normally, the gas material, which is quite fibrous and not really usable for much of anything, either gets dumped or more likely incinerated to generate heat or energy. But the researchers that have been looking at it think that they might be able to turn it into a plastic-like structure that could hold hot beverages in a cup for quite a long while and then decompose later on. But I mean, these kinds of biodegradable cups have been attempted before, no? Absolutely. And they are largely made out of fermented plant starch and such at a cost of $4,750 per ton of biodegradable cups. That is more than twice the price of a plastic cup. So a real challenge here is making something that can hold hot liquids and withstand the experience of being toted around by people while also not costing a fortune and hopefully being the same price as plastic in the long run. And that's what this team has been able to manage. So why is the sugarcane bagasse good for that? Sugarcane bagasse has been trialed for materials for quite a long while. The problem is, up until now, all attempts to use it have not been very effective because the cups fall apart when they're exposed to moisture, particularly hot moisture. The researchers behind this work, led by Hongli Zhu, were questioning whether or not it might be possible to reinforce the bagasse from sugarcane with some other material that was also biodegradable. So they started searching around and they found that bamboo might actually be the perfect thing. Bamboo has very long strands, and they reckoned that if they were able to doctor the bagasse pulp with some bamboo pulp and make those short fibers a whole lot more resilient than they normally are. And that's exactly what they found. They poured hot oil on it, it was resilient. You're able to carry boiling water in it for two hours, and when you bury it in the ground, you know, half the mass of the stuff is gone within two months. That's pretty astounding. And I guess the important question here is whether it's commercially viable if the numbers stack up. That's where the most attractive aspect of Dr. Zhu's research really is. To create a ton of what she's created is $2,333. Now, that is more expensive than the $2,177 that a standard ton of plastic cups will cost you. But you have to remember that that ton of plastic cups is not taking into consideration the end-of-life cost for those cups, which involves the pollution from the incineration, the space in the landfill, and so on and so forth. So when you start to consider that into the element, actually, in the long run, the stuff that she's creating from bagasse is actually cheaper and saving the planet a lot of hardship in the process. And using a material that otherwise isn't much used. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Brazil's the world's largest sucrose producer. And last year, they created 171 million tons of bagasse. Now, that's currently burned and dumped. But if you could take even a portion of that and turn it into disposable cups for coffee and tea and then sell that onto the market, that's a whole lot more lucrative for the people of Brazil than what they're currently doing. Matt, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, 
award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.